You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show, where we invite an expert each week to hear about their incredible journey and career paths. On today's show, we're chatting with Dr. Hina Zaidi, a gastroenterologist. Hina will be telling us about what it takes to prevent and detect colon cancer, or even prevent simple belly aches, gas, and bloating. This week's show is brought to you by Moladina Commodities. I'm Fatima Al Sayed, your You Mentor Talk Show host. Make sure to tune in to the talk show every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you have any questions, just leave them in the comment section and we'll get to them throughout the show. Hina, assalamu alaikum. How are you today? Welcome, salam. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good, doing well. Can you tell us, before we start, what a gastroenterologist is? So a gastroenterologist is a physician who uh, sees people for various digestive problems. You know, mm-hmm. it involves basically the study of intestines. So um, any, any diseases involving your stomach, uh, large or small intestine, and also your, any liver disease, pancreatic disease. So it's, it's, a, it's a doctor who focuses on digestive problems. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a gastroenterologist and I did some work to do uh, extra training in liver diseases. So that's sort of what my day in, involves. Okay. Um, so let's just work backwards. How did you start um, in your career? So um, I, uh, I was born in Pakistan and actually I grew up in Karachi um, mm-hmm. for at least my first 10 years of my life. And then we moved uh, to, to uh, Connecticut where I, where I was for the rest of the time. But my, um, my two youngest uncles, um, my mom's youngest brothers are physicians and um, um, growing up, I basically, they, they, were the, they were young and they were in medical school, college and medical school when I was a kid. And I saw them go through their studies and, um, and I, it really inspired me. I really enjoyed um, seeing what they were studying. And I think, you know, when you're a child, you kind of pick a role model and somebody in your family and, and seeing them and what they did, I sort of knew I, when I got older, I wanted to do the same thing. And um, so that's kind of where my interest started. Um, and how do, you, how do you, as a kid, sit and look at um, two grown men studying medicine and think, I'm "This sorry, is what I want to do." There. I'm asking, like, how how did you, as a kid, uh, look at two grown men studying medicine and say, "This is what I want to do in my life"? <laughs> I was uh, I was right close with them, you know, and I think uh-huh. I, I just like the subject matter. I like the idea of helping others. I um, it's sort of in my nature a little bit, you know, I, I just enjoyed the idea of it. And um, I, I, we were talking about this earlier, but you know, they, in Pakistan, at least when they went to medical school, they would literally bring back like, you know, bones and things. And like, they would be studying anatomy for whatever crazy reason. I just thought it was fascinating. And I think it's like medicine in some ways is truly understanding how the human body works, but then also understanding truly about your own body and how things work. And I think as because of that, there, there's such a natural interest that, you know, folks take to that. So I, I just really loved it. Very interesting. <laughs> um, so you moved to Connecticut and you lived there for the rest of your life. Um, that drive towards medicine, it continued throughout your whole adolescent life? Yep, yep. So I, you know, um, I never thought I would do anything differently. I never really thought about, um, and later on in life, the opportunity to explore other career choices did come up. But uh, from, I was pretty much, uh, you know, on on the path. Um, I knew I wanted to do ever since I was a kid, people would ask, you know, people, uh, uncles and aunties ask what you want to do. Yeah. 
up. And the answer was always, I wanted to be a doctor. And I, I totally 100% stuck to that. And um, uh, yes, in high school, I did research over the summers in, in New York City. So where I lived in Connecticut was just about a 45 minute train ride into the city. So I took time in the summers and did research um, at, um, at Rockefeller Center, which is part of Cornell um, in Manhattan. I, I shadowed, actually, incidentally, I, I shadowed a gastroenterologist when I was in high school. <laughs> Um, because we knew him and that, you know, as when you're in high school and finding a contact, somebody to shadow, it's, it, it's often through contacts and people, mm-hmm. you know, and not necessarily what your interest is. So it happened to be that the person I shadowed was a gastroenterologist. And, you know, I, I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and that's how I kind of got to be exposed to the field. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I applied. I, so I was certain I wanted to do this. And, you know, there are certain programs in the US where you can apply to um, undergrad college and medical school at the same time. So I applied to some of those programs, because they're combined, and you're sort of admitted into both uh, college and med school at the same time. So um, and that's what I ended up doing. I went to Union College, um, which is in a very small little town outside of Albany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for undergrad, and then I went to Albany Medical Medical College for uh, medical school. So these types of combined programs, they start you off in, um, so you still do your undergrad, but they're prepping you for med school for automatic acceptance. Exactly, yeah. So you, first of all, you know, at a very young age, you have to know this is what you want to do. And there are some folks who decide or who realize once they've um, gotten to, into this program that that's, this is not for them or they have mm-hmm. other interests. And they, you know, they back out of it. But um, I would say like probably 70% of us went through it. Um, and uh, so, yes, it's for people who know this is what they want to do. And it takes a little bit of the stress off because, you know, you're already in medical school. So it lets you really focus. And the particular program um, I was in actually um, mandated that we did, uh, you know, focus at least, did at least a minor in some other uh, field that was outside of the sciences. So I'm like an econ major, actually, from undergrad, which probably doesn't make any sense with this, but that's what I chose. And I enjoyed it. Um, I did accounting classes. I did mm-hmm. finance. I did all these things that have nothing, you know, of course, it plays into the business part of medicine, but it has nothing necessarily to do with um, what I do day to day. But And I found it interesting, but it's really, it, it also affirmed that what I had, I had made the right choice. I really enjoyed medicine and, and less so these other fields. So, um, so in that sense, it was great. Does it make it easier going through this route if you know that this is what you want to do instead of uh, going through undergrad and then applying for med school and waiting for acceptance? And yeah, of course, I, I, I do believe uh, it does. Um, you are geographically committed to, and you know, of course, being geographically committed to the Albany area wasn't <laughs> wasn't the best, but. <laughs> Um, so yes, you are, and, and you are the same group of people for about the whole eight-year stretch. But um, it is—I feel that it takes a lot of the stress off because I didn't have to go through this whole application process and wondering what mm-hmm. will happen, and you know, and and so much of it isn't always—you um, know—you know, may be a great candidate, but certain things happen. It's chance, it's, you know. So yeah. it takes all that out of the picture, and you can really go in and from day one, you know, well, you know what? If you do the right thing, you focus on your studies you're going to come out of this becoming a physician, which is a huge stress off your back. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, So after you finished uh, your med school, how did you start your medical career? So after I finished, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, you know, uh, 
I, at that point, didn't know exactly which way I wanted things to go. So I, I decided to apply for internal medicine, which is a, a very general field. Um, you can, of course, be an internal medicine um, specialist, which is like a general physician, um, or you can go on and subspecialize later. So I figured that's probably the best route. I'm not exactly sure which way I want things to go. And, you know, let me do internal medicine and I'll basically will decide at that point. Um, a lot of You're just putting, putting the decision off until a later time. <laughs> sort of, and I, I liked everything I tried. I couldn't, you know, there was, I knew I didn't want to do pediatrics. Um, and so that was the only thing I could rule out ultimately. And I knew I didn't want to go into surgery. It was far too demanding of a lifestyle for me. Um, mm -hmm. So I sort of, you know, kind you know, I knew I wanted to do something within medicine, um, yet I couldn't make that decision right away. So in any case, I, I did internal medicine. I came to, um, and our family, by that time I was married. Uh, my husband's family is in Long Island, New York, and my family was still in Connecticut. Um, so we decided to move back closer to the area. And I went to, I did my residency at Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Montefiore Medical Center um, in the Bronx. So, um, so that was um, a three-year residency. And after that, I, during that time, I knew, I, I really finalized my decision to become a gastroenterologist. Um, it stems from a couple of things. My own grandfather had pancreatic cancer. So, um, and he died, he got diagnosed um, and died within two weeks. And he was probably the first person that I can remember who got sick who I was very, very close with, who got sick and passed away from a disease that is, um, was and sadly still can be uniformly fatal. And, you know, I kind of uh, really thought this is a kind of field I want to be in. I want to see what gastroenterologist. So that's kind of what sparked my interest. As I was telling you before, the person, the physician I shadowed in high school happened to be a gastroenterologist. And, mm -hmm. and then some more personal experiences. It just kept on coming back to this. And um, so I decided I'm going to apply um, I did a one-year specialty fellowship in liver diseases at Montefiore, and then I um, did a three-year gastroenterology fellowship at Northwell, um, which is in Long Island, and it's close mm -hmm. to where I settled. So throughout, um, like, sorry, um, during your residency, what like types of experiences led you straight into gastroenterology other than those life experiences what did you really like about it um i am a very i wanted to be hands-on i mm -hmm. you know uh, i wanted to do something where i could get that i guess instant gratification of feeling like okay this is a, a problem at hand and mm -hmm. i wanted to do something that would fix it in front of my eyes i guess i was like you know it's sort of a personality thing and what that's what yeah. i want out of my job so within internal medicine, um, there's really like two major, uh, you know, every field has its procedural aspects to it. Um, however, the, the main two fields, I guess, that are very interventional or procedural are going to be interventional cardiology or gastroenterology. And um, um, I just, you know, I, subject matter, I just enjoy gastroenterology and I like the mm -hmm. procedures. Um, and you can take people who come in with like a very serious problem and right in front of you, you see like, you know, you, you, through certain interventions that you're fixing a problem. And I like mm -hmm. that part of it. So, so I decided that's what I was going to do. Can there be early prevention um, before they reach the case where they have to come to the doctor and it reaches an extreme Right. Yeah, Please. absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, part of what I do every day is colon cancer screening. Um, colon mm -hmm. cancer is one of the most, 
prevalent cancers in this country and um, it affects every ethnic background. So um, mm -hmm. most people listening to the show are going to be um, of some sort of Indian and Pakistani background, I presume. And, and so of course, even in our community, colon and rectal cancer is a very, very common cancer. And um, mm -hmm. by the time people get to symptoms for this type of cancer, it's usually advanced and the treatment options are fewer. Um, by the time you see any bleeding, by the time you get pain, by, by the time you see any changes in your bowel habits. So it's really critical to, and, and one of the things that's unfortunately our community is a little bit behind in is, um, is screening procedures. So a lot of our folks don't like to come in for uh, preventative care and screening procedures and they have sort of the philosophy of leaving well enough alone. Um, but um, colon cancer in particular is a very preventable cancer. So it's the, the colonoscopies are meant to happen in people who are asymptomatic, meaning they are completely well, they have no concerns and complaints. And once they, if they have family history of colon cancer, then they should start earlier than age 50, but otherwise at age 50, everybody should come in, men or women, because it affects both, um, should come in for a colonoscopy. And, you know, the point is to look for precancerous growths in the colon. And mm -hmm. that's probably the bulk of what I do. It's, it's seeing healthy people who are fine, who go come in for a procedure, uh, go through about a 25 minute procedure under anesthesia in the US. I'm not sure how things are set up in Canada, but in the US it's, you know, under sedation and, um, and you go in and take out these precancerous coats and actually prevent colon cancer. And that's the really rewarding part of what I do is that you can, you can help save this person from tackling what is a very serious cancer later on down the road. What factors would prevent people from coming to a, sc a screening? Uh, so there's, um, you know, there's a lot, uh, there's an element, it's multifactorial, as I would say. So there's um, mm -hmm. an element of not having the information. So basically, um, the common things I hear is that, well, I don't have any symptoms, therefore, I don't have to go through this procedure. So mm -hmm. that's not true. Because again, you, you know, by the time you have symptoms, that means you actually have likely a growth or a mass. And that means the treatment options are going to be fewer. Um, then the other thought is that um, it's a very invasive procedure. And, uh, and in large part, why I chose this field is because women, um, women just don't um, come in to see a gap gastroenterologists because gastroenterologists tend to by and large be male uh, physicians and it's re recent relatively recent the past five or ten years that um, women have been coming into the field so now at least in New York it really are plenty of women gastroenterologists but pr prior to now I would say women were really embarrassed to talk to a, ma a man about this um, mm -hmm. it's a very invasive as you can imagine it's an invasive uh, thing for a woman to have be examined in this such a manner by a man or to go through this procedure by mm -hmm. a man so um, that's an aspect of it. Um, it you have to take a day off from work you have to do a preparation for before the colonoscopy. So all of these are uh, problems. And of course, there's a real lack of access to healthcare in our community sometimes, not having health insurance. Again, you guys don't have that problem in Canada, but in, in the US, mm -hmm. you know, there are plenty of folks in our community who may not have health insurance. And while a screening colonoscopy is covered by every health plan, um, it's, you know, if you don't have the health insurance, uh, then you're not going to be coming in and doing this. So I think it's all of those things together. I mean, I remember we went, um, my family and I went to Zara, um, to Syria before all of uh, everything politically sort of happened mm -hmm. there, probably like 15 years ago. Yeah. And uh, one of the uh, Molanas that was helping us go through the Zara, his wife had sort of 
kind of quietly take in my mother-in-law in our side. She, my mother-in-law is a radiologist, so she had wanted oh, to get, okay. and this is prior to me, even I was in medical school, I think, or maybe in college, but, um, you know, said, listen, I'm having a lot of bleeding and, you know, basically a lot of blood in the stool and I don't know what to do. And I really, and, and so when she asked her how long it's been going on, she said, oh, it's been going on for months to maybe even a year. And wow. she didn't have anybody there she could talk to. She didn't, she was embarrassed. She was, and that sort of stuck with me is that here is this woman and, you know, um, she may actually, and I know personally of folks in our own community, perhaps, you know, who just kind of say, oh, I can't, I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, they're in denial. And it's also an em- embarrassment factor. And by the time things come to a point that it has to be addressed, it's unfortunately too far gone. Mm-hmm. And it's too late at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the points that's really important for me to put out there in this talk today is that, you know, you have to be preemptive about your care. And of course, uh, um, you know, if, you know, if you're feeling well, it's, you know, that's alhamdulillah, it's great. This is how we I want all my patients to be doing, but, you know, and not just a colon cancer screening, uh, mammography for uh, breast cancer screening mm-hmm. uh, is critical. Um, going to your gynecologist for your pelvic exams for women Again, a lot of, well, I don't have those risk factors. I don't have to go. No, you know, we, like, we're women. We have ovaries. We have uterus. You have to have mm-hmm. this routine preventative care done so that you, you know, stay in the best health. And Allah will, inshallah, keep uh, we're us all, you know, inshallah, keeps us all healthy and uh, away from these diseases. But I think there is an aspect of being on top of your own health and being, um, you know, and that does not mean that you don't have faith, perhaps. It means that you, you know, do your best to keep yourself healthy, exercise, um, and, and that eat healthy foods, and then also have faith in Allah that he will, you know, keep us inshallah healthy. Inshallah. If you're just joining this show, we're on live with Dr. Hannah Zaidi. Just a reminder, the Emoji Games is just around the corner. It is by far the largest Shia tournament, and registration is open. At Emoji Games, there is something for everyone. We have a question for you from the audience. Um, this is from a student. How do we find and get into integrated medicine undergrad programs? Um, so I can tell you it's just a little bit now, I guess it's a lot easier with, they can go online and research. I mean, I, um, I would say you just, if you just kind of research combined, uh, it's called BSMD. So bachelor's in science and MD programs, um, you will find that there are, um, several out there now at the time I applied there in, in the New York and I was very much intent on staying close within driving distance of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, there were probably, there's three out of just Albany Medical College. Um, and uh, there's, you know, through uh, uh, Lehigh College, University in, in Pennsylvania, there was one. Um, and now I know University of Connecticut, Rutgers, like there's a lot of schools in this area who will have it. It's just a matter of sort of maybe just as simple as Googling that and trying to come up with mm-hmm. which programs because some, since I've applied, of course, certain programs have don't no longer exist, some new yeah. programs popped up. So um, unfortunately, I'll tell you one thing, though, is when I went to my guidance counselor um, to speak about it, they had no idea about it. They actually discouraged oh, really? me. Uh, because I guess from like the more like uh, Western philosophy, you know, it's like you know, my guidance counselor thought it was kind of a premature for me to make this kind of uh, decision. decision about- at such a young age. Yeah. Young age, and he actually told me, he said, oh, you're being crazy. Just you should go enjoy college. <laughs> Um, you know, do undergrad and then discover what you like to do. And although, you know, that may be great advice for somebody else. For me, I, I knew what I wanted to do. So I, I kind of didn't need to go and explore and all that. So yeah. anyway, it worked out. Yeah. Oh, cool. 
Um, another question that's coming in is about the rise in robotics. So how much of this type of technological development do you have to be in touch with as a gastroenterologist? So um, we, there's a lot of uh, very cool technology down, coming down the pike, I would say, but we don't per se have any, there has been uh, some attempt to have like a more robotically um, engineered colonoscope that kind of self propels it and uh, <laughs> into the colon and all this, but I, you know, really didn't kind of go anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. What I use day and day, the, the, my tool is a flexible endoscope or a flexible colonoscope, which is you know, the, the device and it's, it's every new generation of it is, um, you know, better and better, um, mm -hmm. like the, the graphic, you know, like the, my ability to see smaller lesions is improved even through when I was training to now the optics are dramatically different. And sometimes I'm just staring at what is likely just a normal thing because the, the optics are so good. Sometimes you're like, is this normal? Is this not? <laughs> uh, because you see it so well and, and it's like, you know, magnified. So yeah. So yes, there's a lot of very cool technology. In fact, um, one of the things I, patients always marvel at this is that if you have small intestinal bleeding, um, one of the, the devices we use is essentially like a pill. It looks like a big, it looks like a multivitamin capsule and um, you swallow it and it's actually a camera and it takes oh. pictures all throughout your small intestine because of course our small intestines are hard to get to. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a problem going on, you kind of want to know what's the, what the problem is before you kind of, you know, do you arrange the whole procedure to go yeah, in? Yeah. So this camera just takes these photos inside and um, the patients wear a recorder. And as a gastroenterologist, all I do is like, like watch this video. Basically it's like sit back and watch this capsule go through this patient's <laughs> intestine. And it's really quite cool, I have to say. And then every now you'll see, then it hits an area where there's active bleeding and then, you know, okay, um, I got to go in and treat that but it's first mm -hmm. just deploying this cap so so there's a lot of cool technology and even more so coming through but robotics specifically um are not used for what i do um that's more of like a robotic surgical field is a whole separate thing mm. okay um let's get into a bit of the demands of the job mm -hmm. so how demanding is it emotionally and physically so yes, you know, that that's really what it is. It's like you know, demands are two forms. It's a physical and emotional demands. <laughs> um, you know, it all depends on what kind of practice you have. So there mm. are gastroenterologists who have a very uh, nice lifestyle, you'd say, you know, they have an outpatient based practice. They go to the office every day. They see patients probably half the day. They do procedures half the day, work fairly like, you know, nine to five type of hours. Mm. And that's, their job. So I think you can have that kind of practice. I'll tell you about my day because um, the way my practice is split up, I spend some time seeing patients in the hospital and I spend most of my time seeing patients in the office. So a typical okay. day for me is I come in in the morning, I do procedures because, you know, of course we have to keep, we starve people before procedures. So we do all the procedures <laughs> in the morning to not have to keep them um, waiting for us. So we do procedures. Usually I start like I get my kids, um, you know, either on the bus or they're, they're heading off to school. I get to my office around nine o'clock and I see patients. Uh, I do procedures till about one o'clock or so. And then I see patients between the hours of like one o'clock to, to five o'clock or five 30. Mm -hmm. 
And um, after that, I will catch up on all the phone calls during the day, the notes that I have to write after seeing patients. So that's kind of where, you know, you see your physician, you, you, you know, you hopefully spend adequate amount of time with them, um, you know, 20 minutes, half hour. And, but that's not it. The, the doctor still has to write a full note about your interaction with them. Um, if they order any blood work for you, they have to, that blood work's going to come back eventually. And so they have to go through that. Mm-hmm. If any tests for you, those results will come back and the physician has to review that, then they have to hopefully give you a call back and tell you what, how all that went. So all that extra work ends up being a lot. Um, and I, I often take an hour or two to do it after I'm done seeing patients. And then sometimes, I'll, unfortunately, I'll bring it home with me. And after kids go to sleep, well, you know, my best intentions are to go and sit down there and then do the work. Um, and then there are days, uh, two days a week that I actually go to the hospital, see my patients that are um, hospitalized in the hospital, you know, and um, if, uh, you know, make rounds on them. And if they need an urgent procedure, then do that. So, um, so that day is a lot more unpredictable, because of course, emergencies come in and, you know, things happen at 445. And then next, thing you know, I was having a great day, I was ready to head out. And now I'm there till like seven, eight o'clock. Yeah. So my, my lifestyle is somewhere I would say in between, I take weekend calls as well as part of a group practice. Um, we are about 10, we're 10 physicians. So um, I, my call is about once every six or seven weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means that I'm answering any phone calls after five o'clock when patients have questions and they call. And if of course, any patient is, needs an urgent procedure um, at night, it may be in the middle of the night sometimes um, that I go in and do it. So my lifestyle sort of, uh, it's not the worst. It's not the best. It's probably somewhere in between. Um, <laughs> But, um, but that's kind of by choice also. I, you know, I want to have uh, contact with more hospitalized inpatients, uh, kind mm-hmm. of with that um, for now. Um, but so that's where I'm at. And emotional stress, you know, that's, um, uh, that's, that's difficult because there's, there are weeks that are terrible, you know. Um, there's weeks where you know, most of the patients I've seen are there for minor issues. I'm doing mostly screening colonoscopies, nothing, mm-hmm. nope bad news and there's weeks where unfortunately there's bad news to be given and um you know it, it takes a toll on you every every time it's probably a little part of you that gets it makes you know try to and of course there's some t- process where doctors after years and years of this and i'm this is only like my fourth or fifth year in actual practice start becoming a little desensitized i guess or you have to to mm-hmm. protect yourself but um it's sad sometimes you know late recently i had a I had a case where I sort of just got very emotionally involved with the patient. She had, she told me a lot about her life. Uh, She told me she had, you know, twin girls who were eight years old. I have a nine-year-old daughter, you know, it just, I got to know her. And then, and unfortunately, like, uh, you know, she had got a bad diagnosis and it hurts. Like it, and it's very hard to uh, stop thinking about that. So the emotional stress is, it's, it's very real in medicine and, um, it makes you thankful for what you have. It also makes you sometimes feel very guilty for how much, you know, for how, you know, Alhamdulillah, we are also blessed to have our health. And, you know, that's just, uh, you just kind of remind yourself of that and try or my best to help those who are not at that point right now, you know, who are suffering and try to make it easier for them. Does religion and having faith uh, and Allah make it easier for you to sort of cope with that? Yeah, you know, I, I like to tell myself that they, there, there, there's an overall plan that Allah has for all of us. And I'm just seeing one little aspect of it. So here I am maybe giving like a bad diagnosis and it makes me so sad. It's tragic and I just can't explain it sometimes. Why is this happening to this person? But 
You know, I always remind myself that Allah has an overall plan for all of us. And I'm just seeing one little aspect of it. And uh, may, like, you know, this, this person's life may go on to take other turns. And uh, like, um, inshallah, things will change and look up or some good will come out of somewhere down the road. And, you know, I'm just seeing this one point in time where either they're being tested or this one, you know, curveball has been thrown at them. And you do need some faith to know or believe that, something good ultimately will come down the road. Mm-hmm. And in your field, it's so hands-on. Um, so do you feel, so when you're, when you're, when you have a patient and they survive, everything is being done medically. Some patients survive and some patients don't. What's your uh, explanation for that? Yeah, that's exactly where faith comes in, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, there's cases uh, we in medicine we say we went you know it's a textbook case when everything went as planned but sometimes the outcome in two two different scenarios that both went as planned like the outcome may not be the same and mm-hmm. you wonder what's the difference you know why is one person's outcome one way and another person's and and that's when you realize that that as physicians you know uh, we have limitations you can do the exact same thing and for two different people yet two different outcomes. Um, make may come out of it so mm-hmm. that's where faith in Allah and you know that comes you know all that comes in and you know I just hope um, my husband's a physician as well and we both say the same thing that uh, we are prayer the wise that inshallah may we be able to give shifa um, the shifa ultimately comes from Allah you know oh everything yeah. comes from Allah and we're just sort of these like we're like the middlemen <laughs> <laughs> I just hope that I'm able to help people through that he uses, that Allah uses us as a means mm-hmm. to help others and that's it. But um, it's very tough. Like when things go very positively, um, you have to always be very humble because uh, um, it's not me. Like it's not coming from me. I didn't, I do the same thing for every single patient. And, um, and then when something, a good outcome comes, it's very easy to sometimes feel that, that rush and feel that, oh my gosh, like, look at me, I just did this. It's like, it, it's a good feeling. Um, it's yeah. a very good feeling. It also is what makes you come back day and day again and keep on doing it. But there has to be a moment where you take a moment to yourself and to remind yourself that and humble yourself that, um, that, that the Shafa really came from Allah and he just used me as a means to deliver it. And mm-hmm. that's kind of how I see it. Before we come to the end of the show, what is your final piece of advice for our listeners today? Um, you know, there's listeners today who are probably like who, who are listening for more like health advice and there's people who are listening for career advice. So, so the advice is, I guess, twofold. One is, you know, as uh, you know, uh, I think we all have to be very uh, assertive in getting our care done. You know, don't let little complaints, just don't brush it under the rug. I think there is a tendency for that amongst folks and that I've come across in our communities and just be in charge of your health, be on top of it, go for all the different checks you need to do and, and stay on top. Of it. I think that part of it is uh, lacking. And of course, things are changing in our community as we're all changing, having lived in, in like more of a Western uh, world. Um, but um, I think that's the advice for the patients and seek out help as don't say, oh, you know, it's probably nothing. Ask your physician, ask, uh, and then make sure it's, it's all okay. Be on top of it. And as for, and for the students listening, um, I, you know, don't ever take one bump in the road, uh, one setback as the, the, the end of the world. Um, 
you know, it takes a lot like to get to, by the time I've gotten to the, the point of my career that I actually got to practice today, we've talked about all the things I did do, but there were a lot of places where I felt like I let myself down. There were a lot of points where I didn't get what I wanted. Um, I didn't match at the exact program I wanted. I didn't land the exact situation. You know, it, those spot, those um, things have happened. And, you know, we didn't get into that today and discuss that. So you, you may walk away and say, oh, you know, this person like they went through this and this and it all. But, but in, in anybody who, um, you know, reaches like a point in their career, there are a lot of failures, a lot of setbacks. And then, of course, a lot of things worked out. So, um, you know, you have to see it as a complete picture and never take one setback as, well, this is the end of the road and I can, I'll never be a physician or I'll never be this type of physician. Um, just kind of keep at it and um, inshallah, inshallah, you know, with the right intentions, it will work out one day. Thank you so much, enough for those words of inspiration and for giving us a peek into the day and life of a gastroenterologist. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. On next week's show, we'll be hearing from Teresa Carter. Inspired by nature, healing, body movement, and breathing techniques, Teresa is a Pilates and integrated movement therapist who leads classes to suit all physical levels. Tune in next week to learn all about her career. We hold this talk show weekly, so if you have any stories that you want to share, please email us at mentoratumojadoutreach.org. You were just listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. Tune in next week on Saturday at 3 p.m. for another panel and more speakers.